This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Oh, I wish that were for me. Oh, sad. All right. Good evening, everybody. So I'm very pleased to introduce Joanne Freeman to Politics and Prose tonight. Freeman is a professor of history and American studies at Yale University, as well as a leading authority on early national politics and political culture. She's the author of Affairs of Honor, National Politics in the New Republic, essential research for Lin-Manuel Miranda when he wrote The Ten Dual Commandments for Hamilton, and co-host of the popular history podcast Backstory. While the political scene may seem quite polarized now, I think we can all agree that we're glad to not live in the time when congressmen used to shoot each other, as well as uh, poor waiters at the Willard who would not serve them breakfast. Unfortunately, this was the climate of pre-Civil War America, contentious, rowdy, and above all, very violent. However, this violence was not merely a result of ill-behaved congressmen, although there were plenty of those. Uh, Most of this congressional violence stemmed from disagreements over slavery, first across state and then party lines. John Meacham, author of American Lion and the Soul of America, writes, With narrative flair and scholarly gravitas, Joanne B. Freeman has given us a powerful and original account of a ferociously divided America. For readers who think things in the first decades of the 21st century have never been worse, Freeman's portrait of a tempestuous and tumultuous U.S. Congress offers a sobering and illuminating corrective. She shows us that the battles of the Civil War began not at Fort Sumter, but in the U.S. Capitol, providing a new and compelling angle of vision in the origins of what Lincoln called our fiery trial. Now, please join me in welcoming Joanne Freeman. are amazing. (laughs) I feel so welcome. Thank you. Well, I'm really, really pleased uh, to be here this evening to talk to you about my just published book, The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress and the Road to Civil War, which tells the previously untold story of physical violence in the House and Senate chambers in the decades leading up to the Civil War. Now, in the many years that I've been working on this book, many years that I've been working on this book, Um, I've discovered that most Americans know about one violent incident in Congress. And it's actually, I find it kind of reassuring that, you know, I don't know how much history most people know, but when I said, oh, I'm working on a book on violence in Congress, most people could at least do this. Yes, indeed, there was that guy. So they're they're thinking, of course, of Senator Charles Sumner, the abolitionist senator who was caned in 1856 while seated at his desk in the Senate. And the book's title is actually taken from a response to that caning. So not long after the attack, a friend of Sumner's wrote to him and said, quote, that blood would flow, somebody's blood, on that field of blood, the floor of Congress, I have fully expected. Now, as a historian, I sang little hosannas when I read that quote. I thought, oh, thank you for the title of my book. But what's striking about that is clearly for the person writing that letter, physical violence in Congress was not a surprise. He expected it and literally called the floor of Congress the field of blood. 
So clearly that is a story that has not been told. And yet there was a lot of violence on the House and Senate floors between 1830 and 1860. And in fact, I found roughly 70 physically violent incidents in the pre-Civil War Congress between 1830 and 1860. And by physically violent, I mean canings, shoving, fistfights, people pulling knives and guns on each other, duels and duel challenges, uh, wild melees, like packs of congressmen fighting each other, usually in the house, <laughs> uh, with bunches of men rolling in the aisles, throwing punches and tossing the occasional spittoon, um, and a handful of street fights with fists, bricks, and the occasional umbrella. Now, probably many of you are thinking that sounds like a dramatic story, so why has it not been told before? And of course, I asked myself that question a good many times when I was working on the book. And there are, I suppose, a multi-part answer, but there's one particularly good reason. And that is, a lot of the violence was censored out of the period's equivalent of the congressional record. There are clues in the record, which you notice, once you know the violence is there, then you can kind of see it's masked. So, for example, every now and again, the record will say, quote, the debate became unpleasantly personal at one point. <laughs> so in one instance, someone pulled a gun on somebody else, and that was unpleasantly personal. Or it will say, quote, there was a sudden sensation in the corner, <laughs> as when two congressmen began slugging each other and they flipped a desk. Enormous brawls, the spittoon-tossing brawls, get mentioned, but in the barest detail, as in the case of one enormous fight in 1849 that a reporter summed up with this wonderfully poetic way of describing chaos. And this is actually in the record. It says, quote, the house was like a heaving billow. <laughs> kind of gives you a good image of what it was like. What you don't see in the record is the kind of detail offered in this account of a house fight that I found in a diary. Okay, and this is, I'm, I'm taking you into the middle of a fight here. This is a long account, but this is the dramatic peak of the fight. The speaker was crying at the extent of his voice, order, 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 explanations from the crowd of damn him, down with him, where are your Bowie knives? Order, gentlemen, for God's sake, come to order. Go it, Arnold, knock him down. <laughs> That's not in the record. <laughs> And the reason why it's not in, in the record partly has to do with the nature of the Washington press in this period. In the 1830s, the Washington press consisted of a handful of men working for a handful of local Washington newspapers who sat in the House and Senate, scribbled notes of the debates, checked often with the congressmen that they were being accurate, and then published their accounts not only in newspapers but also in spin-off publications that essentially acted as a kind of congressional record. The newspapers that these reporters worked for were unquestionably, unapologetically partisan. So objective news was not on the radar screen at this point in time. So as a reporter, if your paper was a party paper, it was in your interest to make your party's congressman look good. It was also in your interest as a reporter to make congressmen look good because congressmen granted government printing contracts. <laughs> and if you were a press in Washington, your survival pretty much depended on government printing contracts. Plus, unhappy congressmen occasionally slugged the reporter who made them unhappy. Yet another reason why you really wanted to make congressmen look good. So 
The Washington press had a lot of reasons to smooth over the rough edges of what happened in Congress, which means that although the Washington newspapers played up the bravado of many congressmen, they left most of the violent details out. So why hasn't the story of congressional violence been told? Well, in part, it's really hard to find. If you're not looking for it, if you don't know it's there, you won't see it. Now, given the fact that that violence is really not really very obvious in the congressional record, the logical thing you're probably thinking now is, well, then how in the world did you find 70 physical fights? Actually, you might be wondering how I found this topic at all, given that no one has really written about it. And the truth of the matter is I should come up with a very sophisticated, you know, well, I was thinking about There's no sophisticated answer. I was trying to decide what my next book would be about, and I stumbled across this. My first book, Affairs of Honor, was about the logic of political combat in the 1790s. So particularly, I'm interested in political violence. I'm interested in how political violence shapes national politics. So I thought, well, whatever I do next, I'm not sure what it'll be, but whatever I do next, it'll probably have something to do with political violence and politics. So I knew that in 1838, one congressman killed another in a duel. And I thought, well, if people are going to have something interesting to say about violence and politics, probably 1838, when one congressman killed another, that's a good bet that I'll see something interesting there. And hopefully, if the history gods are happy with me, some brilliant idea will come to me and I will have an idea for a book. So I went to the private correspondence of a congressman from the same state as the man who was killed in that duel. And I began reading. Now, this particular congressman wrote to his wife almost every day. And I soon found that his letters were filled with moments of violence or near violence. People pushing up their sleeves to throw a punch, people actually throwing punches. And at first, it was so unexpected to me. I, I really had not ever seen anything like that before that I actually thought, maybe he's entertaining his wife. You know? <laughs> like maybe he's telling in these stories like, hey, guess what happened on the floor today? But in time, I simply found too much violence in his letters for that to be true. So then I turned to the private letters of other congressmen. And in the three months that I spent researching at the Library of Congress, I never opened a congressman's private papers without finding at least one fight. So in the end, by digging in private correspondence and diaries and then comparing what I saw with what I was glancing at in the congressional record, and then when I could find it, looking at newspaper coverage, I found so much violence, I had to tell that story. And given what I've just described to you is how I had to dig up this sort of stuff and piece it together, this is why it took me 17 years to write this book. <laughs> oh, really, it, it's as old as my students, is how long it took me to write this book. Um, now, not surprisingly, when you look at the violence over the 30 years in the book, you see patterns. So for one thing, you really see the power of political bullying. Generally speaking, congressmen divided their ranks into two kinds of men, fighting men and non-combatants. And those are actually their words, right? I'm not even making up those words. They broke down their ranks. At the beginning of a session, you would sort of look around for the fighting men because you really wanted to know who they were. And you also, it was handy to know who the non-combatants were as well because you could bully them pretty easily. Most fighting men were Southerners or Southern-born Westerners, and so they typically were armed and willing to fight, and most Northerners were non-combatants. 
surprise, which means, generally speaking, Southerners bullied Northerners in Congress, often to protect the institution of slavery. They insulted and threatened and sometimes assaulted Northerners to intimidate them into compliance or silence. And for a time, this strategy worked quite well. So for a time, Southerners really did have an outsized influence on the floor of Congress. And the same way that the three-fifths compromise gave them additional representation, this was kind of a cultural advantage that they were using to silence opposition in Congress and protect their slave regime. Now, in the 1830s and, and for part of the 1840s, a lot of the fighting was really party-oriented, men of different parties, uh, Whigs fighting Democrats, and both parties had their share of fighting men, so the fighting seemed relatively fair. But in the 1850s, things began to change, partly because of Western expansion, partly because of the rising problem of slavery on Western lands. The nation's slavery problem really intensified, and national politics became increasingly polarized. And at the same time, a new form of technology, the telegraph, made matters worse by transmitting news around the nation with breakneck speed before politicians could spin the news as they wanted it to be. And the end result was more violence in Congress, particularly given that the American public was increasingly cheering on their congressmen to fight for their rights. And this was as true for Northerners as well as Southerners. As Northerners began to get a sense of the degree to which their representatives were being silenced, they began voting fighting men into Congress. The anti-slavery Republican Party came to power in the mid-1850s based on their promise to fight the slave power. That was their, their um, campaigning. They were campaigning, we will fight the slave power. In Congress, working alongside Southerners, that's precisely what they were doing. And they stayed true to their promise fighting Southerners, certainly with resistance, sometimes with fists, and even occasionally with guns. Again and again and again during debate, and it's really striking, you'll see someone try to threaten a Northerner into silence, and a Republican will rise to his feet and insist, he's a new kind of Northerner. He's not the kind of Northerner that's going to sit down or bend down or be cowed. He's a Northerner who's been sent here to fight. Now, you can see that change in and of itself is dramatic, and there's a good reason why the late 1850s were the bloodiest years in congressional history. So these congressmen were being elected and urged by their constituents to fight. And so the field of blood doesn't tell the story of a bunch of congressmen isolated in Washington talking about policy. It really is a story of the nation being torn in two with Americans really cheering on their congressmen to fight. And I think one of the most dramatic examples of that that I found of this kind of link between congressmen and violence and the public urging people to be violent was in a newspaper, a, a little sort of tiny little clipping in a newspaper. Thank heavens for newspaper databases is all I can say. Um, but it tells a story about a Massachusetts congressman. He's in Massachusetts. He goes to the train station to head back to Washington. And he, a bunch of his constituents meet him at the train station to give him a parting gift as he heads for Washington. It was a gun <laughs> inscribed with the words, free speech. Don't be silenced by the Southerners. That Every time I tell that story, it makes the hair on the back of my neck just sort of rise up. It's remarkable. These people wanted their congressmen to fight for their rights on the floor of Congress. And fight congressmen did. 
it's a dramatic story. And it's a story, as I've already suggested, that this book doesn't tell from on high. It actually gets down on the ground with congressmen and with the American public to try and recreate what it really felt like to watch one's nation be torn in two. It explores how Americans in the 19th century came to turn on each other as enemies over time. Now, to capture that, the intensity of that process, the feelings of that moment, the book has a kind of guide of sorts at its center. I really struggled for a very long time. When I wasn't agonizing over the research, I was trying to figure out how the heck am I going to tell a story about 70 fights with each one could be a chapter? How am I going to do this? And ultimately, I stumbled across the idea of having kind of, he's not really a narrator, but kind of a guide who you meet at the beginning of the book and you sort of travel through with him. I see someone who likes Benjamin Brown French. and <laughs> He's a good guy. So Benjamin Brown French, uh, he's from New Hampshire minor clerk in the House for most of his career, moved in congressional circles for decades, and he ended up really, I, I sing hosannas to Benjamin Brown French too, because he, in the end, he really made the book for me. He kept a diary, an amazing 11-volume diary, that's filled with his reflections and his thoughts and his feelings about Congress and with a lot of details about fights, right? Because his job was to sit in the front of the House and watch what was happening and record it sometimes. So he wrote, there's a letter he writes to his brother and he says, you won't believe what I saw today. And then he says, and my job is to record it. <laughs> so he's an amazing source of evidence. Um, but more than that, he undergoes a remarkable transition over the years covered by the book. So he comes to Washington in 1833 and at the time, he would have been called and was called a doe-faced Democrat, meaning a northern Democrat willing to do anything to appease the South and promote his party and hopefully to save the Union. Well, that's chapter one. By the last chapter in the book, he goes out to buy a gun in case he needs to shoot some southerners. Okay, so my thought was, if you can understand how this collegial guy, everybody likes him, North, South, Whigs, Democrats, all he wants to do is make the South happy. How that guy in the last chapter goes out to buy a gun, how his mind and emotions have evolved, they really are understanding something about, well, the road to civil war, which is where the other part of the title comes from. But you're really getting kind of an emotional grip on what was going on. I, in the book, I call it the emotional logic of disunion, right? What it really felt like, how you were reasoning your way into those kinds of strong feelings. So he really, French really, um, shows you how people learned to turn on each other. Um, I have to also say, he's also this weird Zelig-like character. I, I swore when I was writing this book that people were going to think I made him up. <laughs> I still think people are going to, that's why there's all those footnotes. I'm like, no, look, it's real evidence. Um, he, if something happened that was major in Washington, more often than not, he was there, right? So someone tries to um, assassinate Andrew Jackson, President Jackson. French is watching, right? Oh, look what just happened there. Um, John Quincy Adams has a stroke in the house. French is like not long after holding his hand. Lincoln's assassination. French is at the bedside. French, he's, it's amazing. Actually, Gettysburg Address. I'm very proud of that. Okay, I, I now, this is great. I get to sort of brag about some of the photos I found. This is <laughs> um, I, I, there are like a couple of photos in the book that I really, you know, when you're writing a book, you think to yourself, this took me two months, but no one will ever know that, you know? 
So I, there's one image in the book of um, a congressman named John Dawson from Louisiana who's scary. Um, he's a he's a fighting man. He's the Bowie knife guy. If I see I see this is good. I, I can tell. I can totally tell. But I, I like that the fact that you're acting it out for me, which is I feel very encouraged. I feel very encouraged. <laughs> Thank you. And the shirt too. So no, I'm I but but yeah, he's scary. And and when you when you look in the book and you see the portrait, he, he looks like a disturbed individual. Well, I wanted to show what he looked like. He's a pretty obscure guy. I tracked down thank you very much there he is i tracked down the one portrait of him there's one portrait of him it was sold years ago at an auction house in louisiana i tracked it to the auction house and haunted this poor woman like hi it's me again i really want that photo and finally she let me use it for the book the other one i'm proud of is is at the end of the book benjamin brown french so lincoln gives the gettysburg address and there's a photo of him either sitting down or about to stand up. And you can see it's, it's, first of all, I've never written anything that has photographs, right? I'm a mostly early American historian. So this was beyond exciting to me that I was like, it's real. <laughs> so the Gettysburg Address, it's a photograph of the platform, all the people on the platform. Abraham Lincoln, you can kind of see him. He doesn't have his hat on, but you can tell it's him. And off to the right, Benjamin Brown French, standing there. He was on the platform when the address was being given. So he truly was everywhere. And when he began to, uh, towards the end of the book, his diary wasn't quite as juicy. And I really wanted him. So towards the end of the book, I'm thinking, okay, disunion. French, you got to give me something. <laughs> like, what do you think about disunion? And I'm looking through his diary and I'm looking through his letters and there's no juicy quote. And I'm thinking, oh, come on. Like, I made it all the way up to the last chapter. So I'm shuffling through all my research. Lo and behold, he wrote a poem about disunion. He wrote a poem about disunion. So I sort of feel like he was smiling down from above, handing me evidence when I needed the evidence. Now, 17 years ago when I began this book, obviously I could not have imagined how relevant it would appear to be <laughs> when it appeared in print, right? Such are the whims of the writing gods. I, every two years I would be like, oh, Maybe I'm going to finish this around the time of a congressional election. Wouldn't that be handy? No. <laughs> oh, there's another congressional? No. So this is just luck. Um, and it is impossible to miss some of the modern echoes of the field of blood when you consider current events. So, for example, the book tells a story of extreme polarization, fundamental disagreements about what kind of nation the United States would be, splintering political parties, new technologies skewing and scattering the news and complicating politics in the process. Conspiracy theories being spread north and south as the nation's crisis unfolds. Panic about the impact of free speech in that fraught environment and rampant distrust in national political institutions as well as rampant distrust of Americans in each other. I'm not making that up. That's the 1850s and obviously there are echoes. I'm not saying that we're reliving the 1850s. I'm not saying that we're headed into a civil war. History doesn't repeat, but it teaches. And on that count, the field of blood has much to say to the present. It tells you a lot about the power and dangers of extreme polarization. It really shows you some of the dangerous power and persuasion of conspiracy theories and the way that they really can turn people against each other. 
It shows you about the importance of trust in our national system of government and of Americans in each other. And it shows the role of Congress, when Congress is fully functional, in creating and preserving what I call in the book a national we, right, a sense of an us. The founding generation considered the study of history to be vital to protecting the American Republic, and they assumed only by understanding events of the past could Americans recognize threats in the present. So it's partly in that spirit and also partly in a desire to show you some really fascinating history filled with really good stories, famous and not so famous people, and momentous events that shaped the nation that I offer you the field of blood. And I truly hope that you enjoy it. Thank you. You're like, you're the best audience in the universe. <laughs> Can I just take you with me everywhere I go? Um, I'm, I'm happy to answer questions of any kind, questions about the book. I see Hamilton lurking around here, so I'm happy to answer Hamilton. What, whatever you guys want to ask, I'm a happy camper to answer. Hi, thank you so much for coming. It's a pleasure to see you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and not on your YouTube videos. <laughs> Um, so I wanted to ask, so I know you also spend some time talking about state house level violence in your book, um, that, uh, that one particular, um, uh, gentleman from Arkansas with the, yeah, I am. <laughs> um, in any case, so I was wondering, um, what, what all you found in terms of, um, state house level violence as well. And if that kind of echoed what was the national violence at the time, or if there was a little bit more, um, I guess, equilibrium at the state level, um, as one might assume that sometimes regional people might be more of the same mind than at the other sides of the country? That's an excellent question. Okay, so what's <laughs> happening on a local level? And that's an important question, partly because it would be tempting to think that I'm talking about something that's just happening in Congress, and it isn't, right? And and the Arkansas story of the speaker of the Arkansas legislature uh, who is insulted and steps down off the speaker's platform and kills the person who insulted him, uh, that's not in Congress. No. <laughs> um, so uh, these were violent times in the United States, and there were pol politics, politics was violent. Legislatures were violent. Boston, not just Arkansas. Um, so partly this is happening everywhere. What interested me about Congress was some of what I talked about here, which is the sectional divides and the different senses of violence and, and rulemaking and breaking that North and South and West had. That was part of what grabbed me was, okay, so if you put Northerners, Westerners, and Southerners in a room and you force them to confront these really charged issues that have sectional implications, what happens? And that was where the bullying came from. Um, but no, for sure, it's happening on a state level as well. It's just the, the tone and the logic of it has sort of an extra spin on the national level. Okay. All right. Thank you. Sure. Hi, Professor Hi. Greenman. Thank you so much for coming. A familiar uh, face. Yes. Uh, I have two questions for you. One, okay. did you find that this level of violence happening in Congress gave citizens and constituents permission to act that way towards their own elected officials? And then my second question is, when you were talking about how officials would use these tactics as part of their campaigns, did you find that people who were maybe deemed to not have been violent enough were then voted out of office for those reasons? Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, it's interesting. So, you know, did what was happening on a national level sort of give folks back home permission to act that way. More often than not, what I saw was the reverse, which was people back home kind of urging their congressmen, particularly Northerners. You know, Northerners really um, 
assumed that their constituents would really frown down attempts on their part to be violent. And it's not until they begin to literally write letters to their congressmen saying, fight, fight, damn you, fight, that that's the direction, I think, more than anything that the influence is going. What was the second part of your question? Um, people who were deemed not to have been violent enough in office were then. Oh, yeah. There, were, there were, was the occasional person who was deemed cowardly and not reelected. The flip side of that is you would think or you might assume that these bullies and fighting men would not be reelected which is the precise opposite of what is true, right? So this is a period when there's a lot of churning in Congress, one term, maybe two. The fighters get reelected again and again and again. There's one particular fighter from Virginia. Uh, his name is Henry Wise. He's my most frequent fighter. <laughs> you know, the, the warped part, the, the warped part of, of writing this book is you end up cheering on essentially the bad guys, right? You're like, yes, yeah, slug him again. Um, but, but Henry Wise is exceedingly violent, right? He's punching people. He's tossing off dual challenges. He's reelected six times. And at one point, someone says in Congress, you know, you should get thrown out of here. For, you should get expelled for what you're doing. And he says, yeah, do it. Because I'll be reelected immediately because this is what they put me here to do. And he's not wrong, right? So actually, you can see it also in the book. Um, I talk about this fatal duel in which one congressman kills another congressman. Almost everyone involved in that is reelected. So um, it's, it's kind of not what you would expect, but it tells you a lot about that moment in time. Thank you for being here. Um, oh, sure. I was just hoping maybe you could give us a flavor or some examples of some of the conspiracy theories that you just mentioned in passing. <laughs> so I could perhaps compare it to some of the stuff that we are going through. Indeed. <laughs> I want to believe we're in a unique moment and certainly. Yeah. I mean, conspiracy theories aren't even, they're not new to this period either. It, I will say that the among the many weirdnesses of writing this book was the ways in which I would be like, okay, now I'm going to sit down and write my conspiracy theory chapter. And then... I would turn on the news, right? And I'd be like, God. Um, <laughs> so it was kind of strange. Um, there's a chapter about the Kansas-Nebraska Act that, that talks about some of the conspiracy theories. And it, really, it's Southerners accusing Northerners of manipulating things to crush slavery and destroy the South and vice versa. Northerners accusing Southerners of trying to take over the Union. And they're conspiracy theories because they, they pin everything that happens you know, someone is present in the Senate or in the House and, and belongs in the other House. And someone will say in the newspaper, why was he there? Maybe he was coaching people to attack other people. Maybe there's a whole conspiracy. of you know, And they create these elaborate plots. And, you know, the problem with conspiracy theories is every time you try to refute one, you're part of the conspiracy. Right. So so and they're persuasive and they're powerful. And so the press in that period in the mid 1850s is just full of that kind of, you know, it's all a big plot. They are out to destroy us. And eventually people can't hear anything but that, you know, people really can't hear each other when they're speaking. Hello, thank you for coming. OK, bear with me. I have not read the book, so I'm That's OK. Um, but I'm actually curious. I was perusing around some of the footnote, mostly the bibliography of the primary and secondary sources. And there are some of the presidential papers mentioned, well, published presidential papers. So can you comment without revealing too much from the book what some of the presidents think of the violence going on in Congress? 
Well, that's a good question. So, um, okay, so Andrew Jackson encouraged it. <laughs> I guess that one. I guess that one. Stunningly shocking. Stunningly shocking. Actually, not only that, um, he makes up a word for it. Um, again, as a historian, obviously my favorite thing is the evidence, like his wrestling with the evidence. And so when you find a great piece of evidence, I jump up and down with excitement. So this was one of those cases. So um, before that point, bef- uh, early on, I think in the early part of Jackson's presidency, um, there was one of his supporters who caned someone really violently in the street. The person who did the caning was Sam Houston. Oh. Right? <laughs> Nods of Houston. <laughs> Houston familiarity to the other room. Right. Did the caning on the street, caned this guy really violently on the street. So a couple of years later, there are actually two congressmen. One of them is good old Henry Wise who are opponents of Jackson. And Jackson, in a room full of supporters, says, someone needs to Houstonize those two men. <laughs> he made up that term and essentially asked someone <laughs> to attack those two congressmen, who then armed themselves because they assumed that they were going to be attacked. Right Now, that's Jackson. Um, but the fact of the matter is, occasionally a, a president would intervene if like a duel seemed likely. Sometimes a president would like, you know, Really? Really? Do you really? But for the most part, I think, I I mean, it's actually worth noting. Nowadays, uh, even apart from our current political situation, we tend to assume that the presidency and presidential politics kind of get the star coverage. And in this period, the reverse was true. And Congress was really at the heart of the news. It got all of the, or not all of, but a huge mass of the media attention. And so a lot of what people were watching and reading, I mean, when you look at newspapers from this period, the amount of space given to just coverage of what they're saying in Congress, what they're doing in Congress is is huge. So that's also something in this period is that people were more focused on Congress than on the president unless it was an election year. Thank you. Oh, sure. Hi, how are you? I'm good. A uh, couple of questions. Um, there, is a, there is a radio program in one called Backstory. Is Indeed. that part of your... Your piece? Okay. Well, it's I am one of the co-hosts of Backstory. Okay, okay. The one on the radio, I knew about the podcast. I'd heard about that. Well, that's just wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. you learn a lot. I, I love it, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, you know, you almost, to hear you talk, it, it, you know, you feel as if you just changed the names and you just took today's news and stuff and uh, sort of recaptured it. But I, I do want to, uh, to say something else because Kearns Goodwin talks about mythologizing the founding fathers. Mm-hmm. And do you think that permeates what you have found? Well, I do think, I, I do think there's a tendency. Because none of what you said is in history? Okay. Yeah. Well, people, I think it makes sense in its own kind of way that people want a mythologically wonderful founding, right? And mythological founders who are, you know, flawless and sort of are all blocks of marble standing on a pedestal and, you know, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that um, removes all of the struggle and the drama and the difficulty and the ugliness that's part of it. It's not that everything is horrible, but everything is not good. And so to me, you know, Mm -hmm. and this book is a great example of it, the excitement of history is the struggle, right? And to really understand history, you need to understand people in their moment, 
Yes. What do they think and what do they not think and, and what, what are they assuming that they shouldn't be assuming and what kind of stupid ideas do they have and how are they acting on those? You know, so it's the human component to me that that's all of my work is about that. So that's a really long way of saying I think it's not helpful to mythologize the, the founders or just historical figures generally. So I, mm-hmm. <laughs> These are my fellow nerds. Your fan club. My- <laughs> They're, they're your fan club. Um, so I was wondering, I used to have a professor who would always ask, you know, what line does this change in the history textbook? And I'm wondering if maybe uh, you could speak at length as to, how, <laughs> as to how your book maybe gives lie to this idea of the golden age of the Senate. And people like Daniel, or, uh, Daniel Webster and John C. Calhoun and Henry Clay. Maybe this complicates things a little. Well, for sure, it complicates things. I mean, that, that kind of goes back to the idea I said before that I think people think back to this era, and that's what they call it, is the golden age, and it's a bunch of guys wearing black coats and, you know, <laughs> Mr. Clay. Um, and that's how we imagine the period. And, you know, there were there was speechifying. There were Americans memorizing the speechifying. But happening all around that was the stuff that's going on in this book. So, you know, Congress was a human institution. It wasn't... A monument. It wasn't, you know, a, a sort of bastion of eloquence all the time. There was, there was people went there to hear the speechifying. Although actually, when they did that, they inevitably said that wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> but still, um, so I I don't mean to say that everything all the time was you know two guys slugging each other. But that said, um, for sure, I think we need to you know if our history books are telling us that. Congress is this beautiful, glorious, golden place in this period, and we just have to get back there. There isn't a beautiful, glorious, golden place to get back to. You know, I mean, broad statement. Democracy is a struggle, <laughs> you know, always has been. And y- y- you have to stand up for what you believe in, and you have to watch out for things that you feel are going to be threats to the republic. And that's some of what's going on in this book is just people, you might agree or disagree with what they think their values are, but you can see people struggling to defend what they want and not, they're actually, and this is kind of counterintuitive, they don't want to destroy Congress. I mean, even if they're throwing punches and tossing spittoons, they need Congress to get what they want. So even with all the fighting, they're, they're trying to engage in politics. And so that's, that kind of struggle is, is a big part always of a democratic politics. Thank you. Oh, sure. Hi. Hi. Uh, one quick announcement for everyone. If you don't follow Dr. Freeman on Twitter, then you should, uh, because she's amazing and has all kinds of really cool, and she loves birds, and there's all kinds of fun stuff. You really so, follow me on Twitter. I do, I do, I do. Uh, the question I have is kind of a change over time type question. And so your first book, Affair of Honor, Affairs of Honor, talks about kind of a political culture that is circumscribed. You kind of operate within the language of the box, and if you don't, then that obviously puts you outside of the kind of language of politics and honor and all that. And to some extent, I read it just to say that the violence of dueling is almost an anomaly, right? It's, it's in that in that In era, the first book. In the first book, in that time period, in that era. It, was, I, it yeah. was a tool, right. but not a prevalent tool. It was right. more like people were very focused on their reputation and their honor and occasionally not always, but occasionally they had to resort to violence. Right. And so I guess my question is, is that how does the political dialogue and culture evolve over the 50 to 60 year time period where you're seeing violence be kind of not just the tool, but the kind of go to everyday kind of 
aspect of it all. And so I guess that change over time piece was something that is really fascinating is, you know, we go from the 1780s and 90s to the 1840s and 50s is not that long. We're talking about 50 or 60 years. So what do you think is behind that really significant change? It's a, it's a really interesting question. When I, so after I went to 1838 and I saw the, you know, the, the guy's papers, the congressman's papers and all the violence in it, I then began to try and figure out as a historian, change over time, right? So what, when is this happening? Why is this happening? And one of the interesting things that I found, and I don't really write about it in the book, but in the early 1830s, one of the things that changed dramatically in the, some of the speechifying in Congress and more than that, some of the private correspondence of congressmen is that they began to worry about the press because the press is beginning slowly to grow in this period and you get steam-powered printing presses, you're getting the railroad even before the telegraph, you're getting things that are speeding communication faster politically than ever before. And congressmen are beginning to realize that they're beginning to lose control of the spin. So some of the change, and most of it obviously has to do with policy, but some of the change has to do with the fact that the audience is shifting and congressmen don't really know how to address that. I mean, one of the interesting things to me, you know, our current moment with social media kind of scrambling everything, the telegraph had the same impact on this time period where suddenly news is spreading, I mean, to them remarkably quickly, right? In an hour, you can learn across the country something that's going on in Congress. There's, a, there's an incident in the book um, in which one senator pulls a gun on another senator in 1850, and there's a, a, yet another scuffle and people running to the place where it happens and shrieking in the galleries and yet another one of these moments. And when everyone calms down and sits down, someone stands up, actually a New Hampshire senator, and says, you know, um, within 45 minutes, the nation's going to be reading that we're slaughtering each other here. So we better do something, like appoint a committee or something, you know, <laughs> to, to show people. And you can see them wrestling with technology. And so part of what's going on and part of the change over time has to do with news. Thank you. Sure. Good evening. So happy to have you here. I'm glad that uh, you finally brought this book after almost two decades to publication. But part of what uh, I'm interested in is I'd be interested to know with almost two decades of research and painstakingly looking into this and reading 11 volumes of Mr. French's work and God knows how many other letters and other papers. I imagine in coming to a book that's only uh, not only, but the, coming to a book that's about 400 pages, you had to kill some darlings and let go of some stories that you really would have liked to have included. And I'd be interested to know, perhaps, what's your favorite story of the stuff that Ooh. you had to cut? Wow. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. Yeah, no, I was killing darlings left and right. I was, I mean, I mean the, you know, literally, it's 70 fights, and each one could be a chapter. And even if I wrote about it, there was always like some amazing description or something that, you know, um, sometimes I cram them into the footnotes. If I couldn't put them yeah. in the text, I was like, I can't get rid of this. I'll shove it in the footnotes. But let me see if I can think of one that I eliminated uh, that I wanted to put in the book and that I couldn't. Um, well, there's an episode I talk about, but I don't really go into detail about um, in the 1840s. Um, in which a brawl breaks out, and inevitably they, they all unfold the same way, right? So the, a brawl breaks out, and 
congressmen rushed to the spot, some of them supposedly to break it up, probably more of them to join in. join in. And then congressmen jump up on their chairs and desks to watch, right? So that happens. But one thing that congressmen really feared, and I think I mentioned it briefly at, towards the end of the book, they were very afraid that people would come down from the galleries during a fight and, and join in the fight, right? And they assumed that these people would be armed. So they were very afraid that the American public was going to come onto the floor of Congress. And there's this one incident in which there's a brawl, and in the middle of it, someone comes in with a gun and tries to shoot a congressman and misses him. And the bullet, I think I mentioned this at the beginning of the chapter, because, of course, the guy who shot is a friend of Benjamin Brown French. Um, <laughs> I swear to God, I swear to God. Um, the gun goes off, it goes through the door, the house door, and hits this police officer in the leg. Um, but the, the fear um, that congressmen had that the public were, were going to come into Congress and really sort of show them what they thought. I don't go into that in great detail, but, but that's a fascinating kind of a spin. Awesome. Thank you. Another <laughs> jerks. My nephew Josh was just sworn in as a Capitol policeman on the 31st of August. Oh, and, hey! And, and I know from that ceremony, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the Capitol Police Force dates back to 1829. Okay. <laughs> oh, these are the Capitol people over here. Uh, okay, now I understand. Now I understand. Okay, anyway. They... they the Capitol Police Force changed radically after 9-11, but were they AWOL during all these events? <laughs> That's a wonderful question. They were present. So, so a couple, there were a couple problems. Number one is congressmen had a sense of privilege about what they should or shouldn't be allowed to do. So, right, surprise! So there's a, I know. So there's a, there's a story, um, a minor story in the book, but it, it shows you a, Capitol Police officer intervening and what happens. So there's a congressman walking around the grounds of the Capitol and he picks some flowers for a woman that he's walking around with and a Capitol Police officer says, sir, you're not allowed to pick the flowers on the Capitol grounds, at which the congressman says, I'm a congressman and I can do whatever the hell I want and begins wildly picking flowers. <laughs> so, the, you know, the, the Capitol Police officer, they were there, but, you know, this is a moment in time when they're dueling is against the law and the lawmakers are still engaging in that. So being a member of the elite and the political elite, you got a certain amount of privilege um, that some other people didn't get. You know, when I was working on my first book, um, at some po early point in the process, I remember coming across um, a quote I can't, from a letter. And I think it said, um, the jails are full of duelists. And those are definitely not elite guys in those jails, right? So someone's getting arrested for dueling. It's just not the elite politicians. So that's part of what's going on. Uh, thank you for your talk, and I'm excited to read the book. Oh, thank um, you. Also makes me really happy when people are excited about history, so it's nice <laughs> to see. Um, so my question is, is sort of about the lessons that we can learn from the research that you did from this book. Um, so I, I guess I was just thinking about how... Uh, Moments of polarization are often the moments when the most positive change happens in U.S. history. So thinking about conflict over the Constitution, slavery ending during the Civil War sort of as the end moment of what you're talking about, um, the violence of the Civil Rights Movement leading to Civil Rights Act. Um, so I want, my question is, is sort of about the nature of democracy and whether you think um, sort of significant change can only happen in democracy at moments of heightened polarization 
or if in doing re your research you learned that there's a possibility of another way? I don't think those are the only moments when there can be change. I do think that there are moments when it's clear, when, when Americans have a sense that there is a, a major decision, a, a turning point of some kind that's happening. And when people realize that, that heightens the polarization. And the 1850s is one when it's very clear that the question of slavery is coming to the fore. The 1790s, the late 1790s was one where the Federalists are in power and they're beginning to lose power and they're, you know, the Sedition Act and the Alien Act and all of that sort of stuff. It's another polarized moment with political violence and everything else. The 1960s is another example. And we're having another polarized moment now. Yeah. Um, all of those are moments where there's some kind of a change. It's not just a political change, but it's a social change and a cultural change and even an economic change. And people understand that it's a moment where it matters what you think. Um, and and it, it it's almost hard to imagine those kinds of moments not having polarization. So I don't think that's the only way for change to happen. But I think at those moments when it's clear that change will happen, I think it's natural for politics to become exceedingly polarized and emotional. And I think sometimes some kinds of change, maybe it does take that kind of a moment for it to happen. Thanks. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Part of the Capitol crew I, over here. I gather. Uh, um, one of the things that we have to deal with uh, at the Capitol is this myth of the lost cause. Oh. And I was wondering, uh, do you think that the myth of the lost cause maybe played a role in like the greater public not knowing about the violence in Congress, since it was, it seemed like it was all perpetuated by Southerners. Uh, please speak at length. <laughs> wow. Well, um, so there's there's layers of that, right? So, so my first thought about that is, at the time, how were Southerners perceiving of what they were doing? And of course, at the time, they saw themselves as defending this wonderful cause, and they were in that mindset at the moment, right? Um, I mean, this sort of goes back to the earlier question. I, I think if you're buying into a myth, you have dehumanized the history and uncomplicated the history and polished the history beyond recognition and made it into the story that you want it to be. So, yeah, I do think that if you're if there's a myth that you're hanging on to because it makes you feel good. That's not necessarily the best way to get down on the ground with the people engaged in history, with the people, you know, of all kinds who are in the moment. I mean, that's the excitement about history, right? It's contingency and being in the moment on the ground, figuring things out. That's not, you know, the, the, the myth doesn't help you get there. So, yeah, I do think that that masks things and, it, and people want stories to be good, right? It's hard. It's hard to wrestle with people who are wrestling. I mean, you know, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to wrestle with the ugliness, right? It is. It is. And it's it's part of who we are. And if you ignore that, you ignore that at your peril, at our peril. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Hello. Thank you so hi. much for coming tonight. Sure. Um, hi. <laughs> um, my question is more about, in the course of your research, what did you find that was the most surprising? That even that you did not expect, you know, this event or this person or this, you know, whatever to play out the way it did with your prior research. But it, that was, in fact, what happened. Um, the weird moments. You know? Well, one of them is the obvious one, which is, what the heck? Like, how much violence yeah. is there? <laughs> like, how much violence? And I, you know, I mean, 17 years is a long time. And I never stopped thinking, wait, what? Like, more? <laughs> yeah. There's more? So just the fact that the story hadn't been told 
that it's that dramatic a story and that there's that much violence. That consistently kind of blew my mind. But there are all kinds of other things that for different reasons um, intrigued me or amused me, right? One of the things that I loved and I had no idea it was there until it appeared after this. So there's a mass brawl in 1858 in the last chapter, like a wild <laughs> brawl. And one of the things I didn't expect was this outburst of humor, right? People yeah. making fun of Congress. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right? There was Congress bashing. There was like Congress bashing poems, Congress bashing songs, plays, you know? <laughs> I just didn't expect that. And that was really fascinating to to see how and why people were making fun of Congress and, and what it meant and what they were poking fun at. The other thing that that I, you know, sort of factually I knew that this was the case, but seeing it um, intrigued me is just the familiarity, the amount of familiarity that Americans had with what was going on in Congress. There is a magazine uh, that came out in the late 1850s called Vanity Fair, which is not our Vanity Fair, um, but it was a humor magazine. And it came out right at the time when, you know, fighting is at its peak. Actually, the the um, opening issue, the first issue, has a picture on the cover of congressmen throwing things at each other. You know, I, in the book, I refer to it as Congressional Fights Quarterly because <laughs> but, but the only way you would understand the humor in it is if you knew what congressmen were saying to each other on a pretty detailed level. You know, like they would have humor stories that would pull a sentence or, or two from debates and I could look at it and be like, oh, wow, he's making fun of this guy. Yeah. The fact that the public was that familiar with that level of congressional, you know, happenings was was really interesting. Very different from today. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Hi again. Um, a my question actually is going to more focus on the historiography. So can you detail, maybe comment more on some of the historians who also wrote about uh, political violence? Uh, you mentioned some in the bibliography, I think, and you use, and also see how your book is compared to other historians who wrote about political violence. There, there isn't a lot that's been written about political violence, this particular political violence. Um, a lot of books that talk about the coming of the Civil War um, have... I don't know, a handful of pages that say essentially, wow, it got really violent in the late 1850s. <laughs> and there's a quote. This is a great this is a great example for historians to go back to the source and read it. There's a quote uh, that everyone uses in that paragraph or that page in which a congressman says something along the lines of, wow, you know, if people don't have one gun, they have two. <laughs> Right. You see that constantly. Right. So I went and found the original letter. Well, of course, the most interesting part of the letter is after the quote. After the quote, this congressman says, so now I have a gun and I keep it in my desk and I'm not comfortable having it there. But I feel I need to have it there because if the South and the North go to war in the Capitol, I need to be armed and to fight with my people. That's mind blowing, right? That's way more interesting than wow, lots of people have guns. So um, people haven't necessarily written about that violence, but there are books. Like there's a book um, by Rachel Sheldon, uh, Washington Brotherhood, right? And she has a chapter in there that talks about. I mean, that's a book about brotherhood and sort of you know friendship. But she also acknowledges in that book that there's violence and that's part of the congressional community. So there's there's dribs and drabs, um, but there isn't sort of a, a study. You are the last question. I think everybody here wants to know what's next. Oh, Ken. Okay. Um, what is next? Okay. So um, the next book's about Hamilton. Um, 
I, I do not want to write another biography of Hamilton. Now we're like in the sea of biographies of Hamilton. But what I right now the working title is Hunting for Hamilton. And what I want to do is kind of get at how you find him and how you find historical characters in the evidence. Like how do you hunt? How do you find? And I was going to look at different aspects of his life and sort of show how you could figure them out. And in doing that, show something broader, not just about him, but about the period. So what does Hamilton think about women? Right? What can we tell from his letters about what he thinks about women or, or from what we know of his actions, what he thinks about women? And what does that suggest about women and men in this period and how he sort of ranks with them or how does he fit on the spectrum? So it's a really general idea right now. It's the hunting part that really intrigues me. But in one way or another, um, it's going to be it's going to be the first time I've written at length amazingly uh, about Hamilton. So that's that's the, the plan. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That is a wonderful way to end this. this. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. And Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.